0: If you have your Bibles, I would highly encourage you to turn in them to Genesis. We're going to uh, go to Genesis 18 to begin with, but I think if you can follow along, we're going to hit some pretty broad strokes today. And I think as if you turn with me and your eyes glance down, oftentimes the Lord, the Spirit will prompt something in you that may not even have anything to do with what I say and bring that to bear with fruitfulness uh, in the course of our time together this morning. I'm going to kind of drop right into the middle of a narrative, and then we're going to go back a little bit and, and search that out. The narrative here before us is one of um, when Sarah and Abram were told that they would have a child of their own. And this was in their old age, well past uh, Sarah's childbearing years, and so as we now hear this passage of Scripture from Genesis 18, I'll begin at verse 1 going down through verse 15. The Lord appeared to him by the terrapah tree of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran out to the herd and he took a tender and good calf and he gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them and stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, "'Here in the tent,' and he said, "'I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son.'" Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, "'After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, also, being old also?' And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, surely I will bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, before us is the word of life. It is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting asunder between soul and spirit and revealing the intents of our heart. With it, we now come to you, desiring to hear your voice and the message that you would have for us this day. Open our eyes that we might see your glory and behold the risen Christ, be changed from glory to glory into his likeness. Lord, we have great need of you today to save us from our sins. To the uttermost, save us, we pray. To cleanse us, to wash us, to sanctify us, to grow us, so that we might be more enamored with our God and greater praise naturally spring forth from our hearts, out of our mouths. Lord, we pray that you would guide us this day with the comfort of the scriptures, and that in them we might have hope, and that with Christ our joy may be full. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is the third week in Advent whose theme is joy, and moments of joy can come when we encounter something that exceeds our expectations or something that wasn't on our radar screen at all, like this moment. But characteristic joy, however, is a fruit of the spirit that is produced in our spirit as we live in the awareness of God and his abounding grace in our lives with a sense of awe in him. In the Psalms, there's this little word called silah. We often pronounce it, but it really isn't intended to be pronounced. We don't really know exactly what silah is there for. There's been many um, ideas about this, but it is likely a musical marker of some sort, like a pause or a musical rest in the song itself. Something like, there, think about that. And our lives need these laws to be attentive to God's abounding grace, to, to feel awe with God. Have you ever been in a situation where you are just overwhelmed with awe? I know we use that word "awesome" in almost a kind of a cliche form today that it, it tends to, to lose its gravitas, but something that has really overwhelmed us. I remember a sunset in Tuscany where the sky looked like it was on fire and all I could think of is run back to the villa and get mom so she can share this moment with me. Selah, there, what do you think of that? Or not long ago, we, my wife and I were in Northern California and we had this little happy detour where we ended up hiking through Uh, the woods of a redwood forest and we were the only ones for miles around or so it seemed and there in this forest with all of these beautiful majestic redwoods we noticed something that we've never noticed before and it was quiet I mean very quiet we stopped and we not even heard a bird chirp we didn't hear the rustling of leaves we didn't hear the wind we we in such quiet, the quietest I think I've ever experienced on the earth. And it was a moment of silah there. What do you think of that? A moment of awe. For well, the first time I stood in St. Paul's Cathedral, overwhelmed with the vastness of the, the building, and I'm looking up underneath the dome, which was 365 feet directly overhead, and it was just... Awe-inspiring. It was a Selah moment. Or staring on the clear night, seeing the Milky Way with shooting stars. Selah! There! What do you think about that? Or experiencing the total eclipse, like many of us did a few years back. The likes of which we would have never, if we hadn't experienced, we couldn't explain that. That was a Selah moment. I'm sure you've had experiences like this as well, where there's just a sense of awe. The word awe is defined as a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. It is that sense of awe that is an emotion that is producing praise And that which brings the characteristic joy in our lives that God intends for us to have. And God desires this for you. But in order for us to have this consistently true in our lives, you must have spiritual eyes open to the constant presence of the work of God in your lives. This morning I want to preach to you on joy of God's abounding grace, and the point is this: if you can realize and see how God's fresh and new grace in your lives every single day, and think on it deeply, sila, the taking in of a sunset or that feeling of this redwood forest that I experienced, it gives you a sense of all of Him, the Author. ...from which this joy and praise will automatically flow. You you will not have to create or conjure up praise. It will spring forth from the heart. Now this passage is right in the middle of a narrative... ...of God's tremendous work in the life of Abraham and Sarah. God had just informed Abraham... ...that he was going to give him that special promised son... After Abraham had suggested and attempted other ways, and Sarah at first laughed; she didn't believe this. She had not only been barren her entire life, but now she is well beyond child-bearing years, and to have a baby, well, that, on a that was just going to be impossible on a human level. But that's what God does. He works in this world supernaturally overcoming impossibilities and to make his presence known, to make an emphatic point to you and to me that God is working here. Now, he does this more frequently than our eyes see. He does this more frequently than we stop to take in. And I think if we just stopped and had a Selah moment then we can be much more aware of how much God is working daily and freshly in our lives. Because we serve the same God as Abraham and Sarah. The same God that created the world, which on a human level is impossible. This is the God that not only overcomes all human odds, he is the God of the humanly impossible. Jesus' disciples once asked him, who then can be saved? He says, well, with with man, it's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Now, your salvation is an impossible thing for you, but not with God. And this is where the narrative picks up. Last Lord's Day, we looked at Genesis 4 through 11, and this is where the world was going terribly, terribly wrong. The sinfulness of the depraved humanity had gotten so bad that it was on a a human level impossible to see the creation project getting back on track ever again. It was impossible that a child would be born of a woman that would overcome all of the evil of this world, but not with God. We now turn to a happier passage of scripture as we will now focus on the seed of the woman and its covenantal development as we now come into Genesis 12 forward. Because God had never abandoned his creation project, which he began in Genesis 1 and 2 with us. And in spite of all of the opposition, God is now getting his creation project back on track. And as you need to know this morning, this is still going on. God is very much active in this world supernaturally. We often think of when we see something astoundingly supernatural, we say, oh, God has performed a miracle. And I I often tell the students in my uh, confessional class, miracles are a very special supernatural work of God that only occurred Only a few times in redemptive history in order to authenticate the message and the messenger. We see about 40 years or so of that time going on in the life of Moses. We see another 40 years or so of that time of miracles in the life of Elijah and Elisha. We see about 40 years or so in the life of Jesus and his apostles. And you say, what? Do you not believe in miracles today? No. I believe that miracles were special, supernatural work of God that accompanied redemptive revelation. And the revelation is finished. I believe that God ordinarily just works in this world so supernaturally every single day. We don't have to call it a miracle, though we seem to think that is extraordinary, But we ought to realize and step back a moment and see providentially God is at work supernaturally some ways that appear to us as miracles. Oh, but he is doing that every single day constantly in this world. It's ordinary for God to work supernaturally. And we tend to think it is extraordinary. And so if you want to differ with me on miracles or not, that's one thing. It's okay, but I think we will both agree that God works supernaturally in this world today. I just think it happens a lot more frequently than perhaps those who call it a miracle. And we just need to stop and take it in and have a Selah moment. So as we come into this passage of Scripture, this section that we'll be looking at this morning and beyond and with a broad stroke here, we're going to see God's promise and the covenantal blessings to Abraham and to his family. And we're going to take a a very brief and very quick survey of these chapters of Scripture to get a sense of his overwhelming grace and his working against impossible obstacles in order to keep his creation project back on track. Let's survey this in a quick progression. Let's back up now to Genesis chapter 12. This is where we left off last Lord's Day. We had this genealogy. Remember the quiet, subtle way in which God is working? And now we're introduced to this man named Abram, which God had now taken and selected him out of all of the others And it said, move away, and and here we have God now speaking to Abraham. Not that he was worthy of anybody, uh, not that he was any better than anybody else, but God gave grace to Abraham, chose him out, and decides to work with him. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can you just imagine? This is one of those moments. <laughs> and as God then chooses Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeas separates him and his family and his and. and takes him out of his homeland and then promises him something of which he would not be able to accomplish, we now see an arc from Adam and Eve to a new couple. To a new couple. This is a narrative arc that goes from Adam and Eve through all of the depravity of Genesis 4 through 11, and now we see Abraham. Adam was told, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth but God told Abraham I will bless you and multiply you in the land God wants to get this project back on track and so Abraham and Sarah are a new human pair by which he is going to do this and God's going to work covenantally with Abraham and this covenantal dealing with Abraham is about family and and it's about our family. We are sons of Abraham by faith, and he is called in Romans for the father of our faith. And the irony of this call to Abraham is he chooses a childless nomad to give him a tremendous family. And what Abraham and Sarah could not do for themselves, God was going to accomplish That's grace. And as we survey, we flip a page over in chapter 13. This is where God begins to multiply and bless him. And then so much so he has to separate from his nephew Lot. And then as the separation from Lot comes at the end of chapter 13, beginning at verse 14, we see, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look on the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, so then your descendants could be numbered. Abraham was childless, his wife beyond childbearing years. And here he was, a a nomad, and God had just promised something of which is humanly impossible. So God shows him the land. He promises that his family will be as as the stars of the heaven and as the dust upon the earth. And then we see the advancement once again of this covenantal work of God in Genesis 14. God demonstrates there his blessing upon Abraham. The setting there is five kings come and they battle four kings. Of which one of those uh, five kings was Sodom where his nephew Lot dwelt. And the battle of the world took place out here, and then the the four kings defeated the five and took Lot and all of the spoil of Sodom. And Abraham, for the sake of Lot, went after with 318 men and defeated an entire army of four kings, which had defeated five kings. And Abraham, with valiant victory, then takes back Lot and all the spoil. And on the way back... This strange, mysterious figure named Melchizedek, a foreshadowing of Christ to come, would come out to meet Abraham and bless him, and bless Abraham. He gives him bread and wine, and Abraham gives him a tenth of all, from which we now get the tithe. The tithe is literally a tenth. In Genesis 15, now we see the next advancement of this covenantal relationship being established. And God appears another time to Abram and he promises him that once again that the world will be blessed and that uh, he would have a family and he is now going to make this solemn vow ratified in the cutting of a covenant. And the cutting of this covenant here was literally the case in this particular chapter. Abraham was was instructed to take animals and they were to cut them in half and they were to line the halves of these animals up. And this was after a particular cultural form of the day that Abraham would likely have been known where kings would then come together and they had to make a covenant with each other and they would cut the pieces of an animal and they would make a row and the two kings would walk down between the aisle of the two pieces that were cut as they then made this formal treaty saying and if I break my part of the oath let me be like those pieces and in this strange time in which God told Abraham to do this only God went down between the pieces showing that Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you, but I'm going to fulfill it. And if I don't, let me be like those pieces. And you can imagine God saying, I don't have to worry about that. And Abraham says, well, what's my part? Abraham could not contribute to that. all he has to do is believe. Now, at this point, there are two important parts in Genesis 15 that advances this idea of what God is doing. First of all, it is a unilateral covenant, a unilateral covenant where God himself and only God would then bring it to fruition and be faithful to make sure it comes to pass. Secondly, there is this aspect of faith in Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed and it was counted to him. Righteousness and faith is the essential ingredient for Abraham to receive the very blessings of the covenant that God had just cut with him. And herein is the key verse that Paul uses in Galatians and Romans to establish the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he quotes Genesis 15:6 and several occasions. And that is the passage in Romans 4 that we are called sons of Abraham by faith. Now now there's tension here in this story, this narrative. This tension is that the people who are called to be bearers of the promise are also the carriers of the problem. And we see in Genesis 16 now the story of Ishmael now, Ishmael comes about because Abraham knew the promise of God, and he couldn't figure out how that was going to come about. And, and, and the answer wasn't coming. And so Sarah has this idea, and Abraham thought it was a good idea. Let's, you know, Hagar, and, and that'll be where the promised covenant comes from. And, and here we have this incident with Ishmael, which represents what happens when we believe God on the one hand, but then we take matters into our own hands to bring about what God has promised. It doesn't work that way. Now Abraham didn't wait on God, who had not yet revealed how he was going to bring about the promise. He just told him about the promise. And he let him wait. And one of our biggest challenges in all of life is we get impatient. We want it, and we want it now. We get impatient with God. and We don't wait on God to bring it about His way, and then we get impatient, and in the flesh, we then begin to figure out how we can come along and help God or how we can achieve what God has promised And the beauty here is that God is still going to bring it to pass even though there's now an Ishmael of which Abraham and Sarah are going to have to suffer a little bit because they didn't wait on God. And then we come to Genesis 17. That's the next installment in this advancement of the covenant. And here we have circumcision, which is a symbol and a sign. And remember how I said that stories are adorned with symbols that in some ways, encapsulates the entirety in just that particular sign. And here we have that in circumcision. It testifies of the story of God's covenant faithfulness. It's a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. In it is a sign of God's promise that he will bring to pass. It is where man has failed. God will succeed. And we have this this sign that goes now along with his whole family, which identifies them and makes them distinct and sets them apart wholly unto God. Then in Genesis 18, the passage that we came to as we began, we see the way that now God wants to do it. He wants to do it in an impossible way. Because that's the way God likes to do it. That has been true ever since Abraham and Sarah. And now that the the scripture is closed and a lot of the redemptive revelation now that we have complete, don't think that God has now sat on the sidelines and that he's not working in the same kinds of way that he worked back then. He is. Over and over again, God chooses to bring us up against impossible situations in order to showcase His power, His promise, and His grace. And if He didn't do that, our foolishness would think that we had something to do with it. God doesn't want our help. God doesn't need our help. Help, And that's the point. When we try to help God along with what he's promised, rather than just leaning on him and receiving him by faith and trusting in him and waiting on him, what happens is we get Ishmael's. We get Ishmael's in our lives that we're going to struggle and suffer with. We cannot... Help God save ourselves. And we cannot save ourselves with God's help. God has to do it all. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We can't even help a little bit. Our salvation is all of God's doing, and it is humanly impossible. But not with God. You can no more help God save yourself than you can help him create this world. And that is intended to all us to inspire us with a gravitas and a great reverence and a fear to bring us an overwhelming joy when we realize that God has overcome all of our sin, all of our foolishness, and he gets his project back on track and he's using you and me to do that. But Genesis 20, Abraham in this story with Ambimelech, Abraham almost blows it. Well, you know, she's my sister. He's not trusting the Lord, and he has to fabricate this little lie, and he's not, and he goes to him, you know, know, just say that because they'll kill me for your sake because you're beautiful. And, And he jeopardizes his own wife's good health in the midst of all of this, and he's acting foolishly and almost blows the whole thing. What does God do? He, he intercedes. And he overcomes Abraham's foolishness. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And what is true for Abraham? is true for you, it's true for me. Ladies, this is meant to be a blessing for you. This is the context between Abraham and Bilal that... 1 Peter chapter 3 uses when it's commending Sarah in her quiet, submissive spirit and following her husband Abraham, calling him Lord. And the passage says, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. You're called to follow your husband's lead, but your husband makes many mistakes, very foolish ones, but God is in control of the situation. Trust God with it all. And Genesis 22 is one of the most darkest passages of all the scripture. This is where God then tests Abram and he says, go and offer your son Isaac upon, uh, as a sacrifice. And he gets up early in the morning. He takes his servants, takes Isaac with him, and he's off and he goes. And this is a time when Abraham, the scripture says, had so much faith in God and his promise and had looked back and saw what God had done in bringing Isaac to bear that he just knew that if he sacrificed his son, God was going to raise him up and bring him back to life. That is where now the testing of Abraham's faith is proved out. And God, of course, you remember, stays his hand, did not allow Abraham to go through with it. But when God calls us to follow him and covenants together with us, he calls us to trusting, to believe him, and he will test out that faith. He's going to prove it out in your life. Now, the testing out of your faith is going to be in some area of obedience that it will be Difficult. It will not be an easy test. It will be a difficult thing to obey God, but it's proving it out. It's testing your faith. And faith is the prerequisite to obey God with all the things that are humanly impossible. To live the Christian life, God has called us to live in a manner that is simply humanly impossible. He's called you to live a character that is humanly impossible. But as you trust him, he equips you with the spirit so that you can love your enemies, which you naturally would not do. You can bless those who persecute you, which you naturally would not do. You can live with injustices and be quiet in the moment, which you naturally would not do. But God is going to do the humanly impossible in your life if you follow him in faith. And this is how God wants it. This is how God designed it. Your life is no different than Abraham and Sarah. And all of the justified will walk by faith and not by sight. Not trying to figure it out themselves, but we have to walk trusting God. Yet we too often try to live successfully in our own strength, by our own wisdom, Attempting to do things our own way, trying to figure out our own problems, and not trusting the Lord through it all. But get this now even when we fail, God is still faithful, overruling all of our foolishness with his grace to bring about what he desires out of your life. That's grace. It's a story here of when God enters and works with Abraham, getting this project back on track, and the seed of the woman will eventually come. We're seeing the seed, the family of Abraham, being blessed in this process. But boy, it's a story. It's a story of Lot choosing Sodom, and having a hard time leaving until the angel of God has to pick him up almost by the nap of his neck and deliver him out of the city when he was dragging his feet. It's a story about Isaac jeopardizing the whole thing all over again, repeating the sins of his father Abraham when he lied about Rebekah to Abimelech. It's a story about deceit when Jacob deceived Isaac to get the blessing that was promised to him anyway. But now Jacob is going to have to live in exile for over two decades because of that deceit. It's a story where he also meets Rachel and Leah. It's a story about the Dinah incident that brought about the revenge of Levi and Simeon and the shedding of innocent blood that brought a blight upon this family. It's a story about brothers despising this younger brother named Joseph, who his father favored and sold him into slavery into Egypt, never to think to see him again. The story of Genesis has a dark side all the way through with sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. Because the bearers of the promise are also carriers of the problem. And yet you and I, along our journey, we have made so many mistakes, and we have so many sins that you wonder how God will ever bring it about. Because you too, you too have the carrier of the problem, and yet you also are bearer of the promise. But That's all a point. That's the point. God's grace abounds over it all. He abounds where our sin abounds. It abounds all the much more. And that is what's happening to us. Even though we have a deeply dysfunctional family (laughs) from our past and even in our history, this is not a smooth story. And your life is not a smooth story. Every stage of the story along this Genesis path has got disaster and failure. And we're going to see that all the way through. This is a story about where our lives are a part of this. Because you have to recognize that God has overcome many of your sins. He has steered you away from dangers that you never knew existed. He has providentially led your lives in a way that you have not chosen or planned out. He has overruled many of your bad and foolish decisions, and he has favored you so that you sit here today around his holy table. God has called Abraham to reverse the sin of Adam and to take on the vocation of Adam to bear the image of God, to be the steward of creation so that God's glory will go throughout all of this world and cover this place as the waters do the sea. And that's why wherever Abraham went or his posterity, they made shrines, they worshipped. When Jacob had the, the Bethel dream vision, and the ladder ascending up into heaven, the foreshadow of Jesus himself connecting heaven to earth. There he made a shrine, a temple and worshipped. The irony is that this vision gets things back on track. is carried about by a people who are severely warped, who are deceitful who are not natural keepers of the covenant of their vocation. And the story is one of grace, which has two strands that go side by side, the bearers of the promise and the carriers of the problem. As it's moving forward, it gets to where God wants it to go. But from another point of view... This is happening quite in spite of the fact that everybody seems to be twisting and turning it and trying to do it their own way. But nevertheless, it's held all together by the promises and faithfulness of God. It can be painful why Jacob limped for the rest of his life. And what you end up are these multi-layers of narratives from Adam and Eve and then through the fall and then into all of these layers from Genesis to Revelation and we are a part of this narrative. On the one hand, there's the external battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then on the other hand, we've got this internal battle that's going on between the bearers of the promise and the carriers of the problem between flesh and spirit. And you always have these two enemies, the ones without and the one within. But God is faithful. In spite of all those obstacles, he's got his project back on track. In spite of all the obstacles, God will finish the work that he completed. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And you are on the path that you are on, not because you sought it for yourself, but because God planned it out already in your life. And yes, through many mistakes and many sins and a lot of foolishness, God's grace is abounding over it all. Folks, he wants you to recognize that. Stop trying to help God achieve what he has already accomplished. Just sit back and take it all in. Be overwhelmed by the power of God to overcome all of your foolishness. And when you stop for a moment and you think about this all in a deep way and you kind of take it in naturally, praise will spring forth and joy, true joy, will come. We need to be in awe of God on a regular basis. And we are often not in awe of him. But it is not as though he has not given us any fresh material, but because it requires us to stop and take him in and to know him and to meditate on what great things he has done and is doing in your life. Like a Tuscany sunset. Or the quietness in the middle of a redwood forest. But if you're constantly on the move, like our society so much is, you'll not experience this or it will come only infrequently. As the old hymn reminds us, take time to be holy. We need those silah moments in our life every single day. And this Advent season is about a time to stop and take God in. That will require you to to take an inventory, to see your sins and your sinfulness and your foolish mistakes and your weakness and your poor decisions in life and to really own those things but not spend too much time there. Immediately, you look upward and you see what God has done to overcome it all. You see what he has done to bring you back. You see the good that he is still doing in your life. You see the impossible situation that he has overcome to bring you to where you are today. But our problem in life is we look oftentimes too introspectively at ourselves. And that is depressing. Or we think too highly about ourselves, and that yields the the self-sufficiency. Or we're too focused on the problems of the sins of other people, and that brings us bitterness and complaining. Or we spend too much time thinking about the current affairs of this fallen world, and that breeds in us fear and despair. But we do not spend near enough time enamored with God, taking Him in, having those daily Selah moments, spending the time necessary to soak Him up and what great things He is doing. In your life today. And where he's brought you. And doing an inventory over the progress. And the path that he has brought you on. A path that you did not seek out. A path that you did not plan. But he has you around his table today. Because of his grace. Stop. Take it in. Not a quick. Passing glance. But a. Selah, there, what do you think about that, is what he wants. So remember him this Advent season. Remember his provision for your life. Remember his protection over you. Remember those unexpected blessings he has designed for you to have. Remember His forgiveness. Remember His providential direction in your life. You won't need to fabricate praise. It will spring forth from you as you are awed with what He has done. Advent is a season to marvel. Stop and take it in. Selah. What do you think about that? Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for Christ. We're thankful that your only Son, the seed of the woman, came to accomplish those things which we could not. Have overcome not obstacles, With great odds, but have overcome the impossible in our lives to bring us into the realm of what is possible with God. That we might look with you upon with reverence and fear, with a sense of awe and joy in our lives, ever praising you and worshiping you for what great things you are still doing today. Lord, we ask that you'd open up our eyes, that we can see that you are still working supernaturally every day in this world. Oh, keep us from the error of being a practical deist. And keep us from the error of Gnosticism. Oh, God, may we see that you are active in this world, doing that which is pleasing in your sight, working in us and through us to do of your good will and your good pleasure that we can behold your glory and shout out glory in your temple. So, Lord, may we take time to realize those sila moments in this season. And we pray you would show us great and mighty things daily for which we will spring forth naturally in praise and thanksgiving and have our joy full in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.